Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Another day, another episode of Go to Market Heroes. I'm Paul, your podcast host at large, and I'm with Andy, our podcast hero. I think I mentioned it briefly in the first episode of the season. He has a home computer museum, vintage computer museum. I mean, I haven't seen it uh, because lockdown. I know you have, what is it, a Sharp MZ80K or something. I'm not as good as he is, clearly. I know he has a lot of, or at least one Commodore 64. Can you tell us just a little bit about what it is all about and how many pieces perhaps you do have in your home office? (laughs) (laughs) Well remembered, Paul. I wouldn't call it a museum, by the way. I think that would be stretching it. I think my wife would call it garbage, actually, <laughs> if we're really honest. So, and it's mostly my roof, okay? It's in my attic. I love periods in history where it goes from hobbyists to professionals. And I think the early 80s were this really interesting phase where, you know, the early computers came out of people who went to homebrew clubs and kind of just messed yeah. around with this stuff and were self-taught. And my father was part of that. He was very early in the, he was a self-taught electronics engineer. Wow. And he's sadly no longer with us, but I've inherited a lot of his stuff. So some of those early computers, the Sharp MZ 8K was our first family computer, which I loved, but was terrible at games because everyone wants to play Space Invaders, right? <laughs> so, so that's when the Commodore 64 came along and it had sound and it had color and it could work on a big TV. It was like, Wow. And I still, to this day, every new generation tech, I still get that wow moment, you know, and that winds all the way back to that super early 8-bit micro back in the day. It shows that I'm slightly younger than you because I think early 80s, it wasn't even a computer. I had a ColecoVision, which was like a gaming platform. That was 1982. And then I had a Philips MSX, but I never had a Commodore 64. I went directly to Amiga, Commodore Amiga a bit later. Yeah, I regret those days because uh, gaming was so much more, or maybe I'm just old. Anyway, back back on track for the show today, which we could title Andy Dimoawi, after the famous Rita Mitsuko song of, uh, I think it's 1986, un show que nous pourrions faire en français, a show that we could do in French, as we are welcoming Amandine. So Andy, please introduce the hero of the day, Amandine, to all of us. Absolutely. Well, I would like to welcome today Amandine onto the show. I've known Amandine now for maybe a year, and I've had the pleasure of working with you for probably the last nine months. So we've got to know each other a little bit. Amandine is the co-founder and CEO of Element and also Matrix.org, which I think is now seven years old. I was looking kind of back at LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We started Matrix in 2014 indeed, and it's beginning of May, so we're getting to the seventh anniversary. The seven-year itch anniversary. And I wound back through your career, a good stint with Amdocs, an amount of time with Alcatel, and then one that really threw me, I'd never seen this before, that you were an electronic technician at ABB. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no <So>. way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm an engineer in electronics, telecoms, and computer science. And to be clear, computer science was the thing I, I liked the least. Here I'm ending up doing computer science. My thing has been more around communications. I like electronics because it's, I always found it fun, play with the hardware, etc. The ABB thing is more that it was a full year internship in uh, the engineering studies. And I had decided I wanted to go to the Nordics. 
there was a Swedish course. So I stopped German, started Swedish and say, okay, wow. I'm going to study Swedish. I need to find something in Sweden. Obviously, I ended up at ABB. <laughs> so yeah, but thank you for, uh, for having me today. I've been looking forward to getting on. Welcome. And it's always funny looking back at people's career because it's kind of a bit of accident and a bit of design. So how did you navigate this? I mean, you've ended up now, we'll talk about Element in a minute, building Element, but was it always like, hey, I wanted to build a company? How did you get to where you are? It's always been, I want to build my company. There was definitely a moment of, I really want to build communication systems. And initially I was, um, which years would have been early 2000s, I was more uh, focused on the mobile networks. I found like 4G, amazing. You can send whatever you want uh, from one phone to another. That's, that's the future. <laughs> so that's really what uh, I was passionate about. And that's why I, I started with Alcatel and starting to work on 3G networks themselves until I ended up in a startup in Rennes, which were building mobile apps. Because of course, if you want to do a lot of fun stuff on top of the networks, you need the mobile apps, which was called the Stremezzo, which ended up being acquired by Amdocs. And one day we had this um, case study. So within Amdocs, I set up a QA team because I'm a control freak. <laughs> and then uh, doing project management, pre-sales. So basically always like, I understand tech, I like tech, but I'm not very good at it. So I like to translate it for others. And uh, one day, one of our boss came in saying, okay, guys, we need to build a business case for a um, communication app that we're going to sell to telecom networks so that they can compete with WhatsApp and Skype. I said, oh, that sounds exactly the kind of things I want to do. Can I have it? So I picked it up. And it turns out that the other half of this app was built by a team in London. And uh, that's when I met Matthew in 2012, almost to the day, actually, where I ended up in Paris with Matthew brain dumping on the TNG platform they were building at the time. And that's how Amdocs Unified Communication started. So then it's been an interesting uh, travel because... It was an interesting job, but what I wanted is really work at strategic level. I was always frustrated because I didn't know what was happening, what was the big picture. So I say, okay, I need to do an MBA so that I can get to that level. I, I can't wait 10 years to get there. I need to learn so that I can go faster. And so I did for 18 months. Simultaneously, we were setting up the Unified Comps business unit as well as doing my MBA, it was like two days every month or something like this. So it was like a virtual circle where I had real life use case I could apply to the studies and then take the theory from the studies that I could apply real life. And it, it, was, uh, it was really, really fun. So yeah, we did that for a couple of years until one day dealing with telcos was too bad. And we said, okay, this is successful. We have 12% market penetration with our app. But look at WhatsApp, 98.6. We're not changing the world. We're just making it worse by building yet another silo. What can we do to fix it? So we brainstormed a lot and uh, at some point pitched up to Amdocs uh, management and say, hey, this is a good business. I Unified Communications is pretty successful. We're running it as an incubated startup, but we're not bringing any impact here. So we have an idea. Either we leave and do something more fun or if you're up for it, you could fund a moonshot, which may or may not destroy the phone network from which you're getting billions of dollars a year. <laughs> 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 but 
but at least you're going in history and you can send for billions of dollars of matrix servers once we've destroyed the full network because you've been at the origin of it. And actually, that's when we managed to convince them, having proven we were able to actually build a business which were profitable, they they probably trusted us a bit and uh, liked the vision. So that's how we ended up incubating Matrix for three years within Amdocs. Pretty cool story. I'm wondering whether those conversations went down like that and whether they sat there and thought, "We're we're creating our own biggest competitor here. How, back then, I'm curious, because this show is all about go to market and all the different ways people think about that and how they've done it. Open source was probably, you know, outside of Red Hat, there probably wasn't a ton of open source around back then. So what made you kind of think, hey, this is the path we want to take with uh, Matrix? Basically, we've built Matrix on the experience of 15 years of building communication system. So Matthew's team uh, has been together building these since 2003. So they had gone and built on top of XMPP, on top of SIP, building for unified comms. We've built our own proprietary stack. Actually, the beginning of it was XMPP already. So we've we've played with everything out there. And that's why at some point you say, but seriously, why? Why isn't there a very simple API which allows you to build a communication system? And why don't all these communication systems talk to one another? Why are we building silos? And why is it so problematic to just build a chat app? It's super hard. Uh, So it's basically the team sitting down and saying, okay, if we had to do it right, based on everything we know, the entirety of the experience we have, how would we do it? And we looked at what went wrong with the other um, projects like XMPP, for example, and designed the projects so that we knew it needed to be an open standard. If you wanted this to work, if you wanted to actually give the data sovereignty to people, give them the choice to choose the app they actually like to communicate, give them the choice to choose who is hosting their data, needs to be an open standard. That was like the baseline. Needs to be decentralized, like email. Anyone can deploy it. Anyone can control it. And the thing is, we're building communication systems, so it needs user. You need a network effect. So for that, you need a glossy app. And that's how we put at the top of the list what is Element today was Riot before, and Vector even before, and uh, had many, many names. That is Element today. (laughs) Good. (laughs) And um, yeah, basically, the idea was to build an ecosystem from the get-go. And you can only build an ecosystem if you go open source, if you provide open source implementations of the server, open source implementation of the clients, hence element being open source. And yes, it was disruptive. And uh, trying to do open source software in a multinational corporation was a bit hard. We we were just at the beginning of open source starting to be hype. So it helped. But oh God, the discussions with the lawyers, please, can we have a GitHub account? What? Please, can we open source? What? But RIP. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it was... Uh, a few hurdles. <laughs> Luckily, we had the support of the management who bought it. But it's really fun to look at the decks we built in 2014 when we were pitching for it. Say, hey, several steps. One, it needs to be open source. Second, it needs to be an independent brand completely unrelated to Amdocs because we cannot build an ecosystem if Amdocs name is all over it. Again, marketing. Oh. But luckily, they just changed CMO and the guy had been working on com system before, etc. So he, he got it and backed us up, uh, which was good. 
And yeah, we need our own budget and be able to do the marketing we want whenever we want. So it was like getting even more into independent mode. Honestly, often I'm amazed that we actually had the support we had to, to do it. And uh, we wouldn't be there without people being a bit open-minded at the higher level. You're right. You know, um, I think just as you started to build this, open source started to get a bit of hype. I mean, I was at Hortonworks and we were kind of carried along in that wave as well. And models were evolving really, really quickly in terms of how people thought about, you know, I used to hear all the time, like, are you pure open source? Are you open core? Are you API driven? Are you a support model? It was like every flavor going. How did you kind of untangle this and think, okay, we're going to have, of course, we're going to have the open source community, but how do we think about what element is? What is that in terms of a commercial entity? So when we uh, started building this, of course, we had to pitch a business model and we sat down and said, okay, what can we build on top of this matrix thing that we've done? We came up with 72 business models. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I can show you the deck, Andy. It's like 70 use case. We can do messaging. We can do VR. We can do uh, support for events. I remember there were use cases where you had to integrate with the cameras in the stadium and then you would share the data. Uh, there was so many things. There was, oh, governments would love it, but we don't like it very much to work with governments. So we're not going to go there. We're going to focus on collaboration and messaging because that's something we know pretty well. and It's going to drive it pretty quickly. And then we can do some support. We can do hosting. Hosting. The SaaS was always our main target until the day we had the French government knocking at the door saying, please, can we have professional services and consulting to help us deploy it? Say, governments? Oh, well, <laughs> that's our first customer. It's the French government. Of course. <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> so that's uh, how we ended up starting mostly with level three support and uh, consulting to help them deploy the open source software. So there wasn't much proprietary at the time. Still keeping in mind that we really wanted the SaaS platform and the App Store model. The App Store model also had been here from the get-go with the ability to add integrations into the app and making sure that we could one day provide some payment via these integrations. And the, so that's been from the beginning, the long-term goal. And that's why we're actually growing into it. Now we're doing more and more licensing with very specific products, proprietary products for enterprise and defense use cases, but always making sure that open source product is the state of the art for um, day-to-day -day communication and the mass market. We are not looking at open core models where the open source is crippled so that people pay to get all the features because we know that otherwise someone else will just come, fork it and add whatever feature we've been crippling out of it. So yeah, make sure that the product is useful for everyone, has all the useful features. But then if governments want to add the ability to break encryptions because they need to audit whatever is happening on their platform, pay for it. That's fine. You know, I remember the early days when I met you and Matthew, actually kind of pre-Series A, when I think back the first time I actually met you, and you've stayed true to this vision, you know, I think equating it to email spoke very powerfully to investors, kind of like, hey, you can send an email to anyone, you don't worry about what clients on the other end, you just send an email, you know, and I think your vision of that in your chat world was pretty powerful, like, yeah, why are we sat in all these silos, you know, you start, all of a sudden you thought that that makes sense, I didn't really think of it that way. But you, as you started to build this, I think your superpowers of data sovereignty, decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer encryption kind of hit at the same time as where privacy, especially in Europe, became a big, big issue. 
And those early customers were like huge for you. I mean, it wasn't like you were kind of easing in gently saying, let's just do a couple of small deployments and see how it goes. How did you cope with some of the first customers being like big national governments saying, we want to deploy like hundreds of thousands, you know, not tens of thousands or thousands, but like really big deployments from the off? First, we had the experience of running carrier grade deployments like this when we were selling to telcos. So that's something we really knew how to do. And it was just a matter of making sure the tech was up to it. So uh, there was a lot of performances. And we have the big open source matrix server, which is very good guinea pig for many, many users on it. Today, it's like 12 million users on this single server. Well, we've, and we've been experimenting as well, because when the French government came along, we've been clear, say, guys, we're in beta, right? Uh, you know that. So say, yeah, sure, we start with a trial. And it took one year to actually start the first deployment, play with it, have a few hundred users trialing it. And it's only one year later that we actually properly launched it. And um, by then, we knew that it was, um, it was working well. And those early customers were very much founder-led sales. So, you know, I know you were very hands-on in terms of, and you still hands-on with a lot of sales, in terms of leading those. When did you think, okay, now's time to build a sales team? So thinking about that go-to-market motion, like how did you start to map out and say, I think we're at the point now where we need to think about all the things you're having go-to-market from marketing through lead development, through sales, through customer success. What was that kind of pivotal point? When we eventually managed to get Series A money, basically, because until Series A, we were getting enough inbound to have enough revenue to grow. And we raised a Series A at the end of 2019. Then we were able to say, okay, now we have the means to actually hire a proper go-to-market team. And until then, we were 30 people and two people who were not working on the dev, the finance controller and me. <laughs> Even the designer was doing a bit of coding. So that's, uh, that's where we got to. And then we say, okay, now we can go bigger because we have this money and we can invest and actually grow the team. So yeah, we started the project in 2014, spun out in 17 and hired our go-to-market team at the beginning of 2020. So we just talked about your business model and the momentum that you had. Where do you start? You know, you're building a go-to-market team. You've been handling a lot of sales. What do you do? Someone's out there now thinking about product-led growth versus top-down models versus should I go for public or private? You know, all these questions. How did you untangle all of that? So, as I said, we always have this goal of the very long-term vision where we believe that the app store is going to be where the main value is going to come. Turns out we had to start with public sector, which on one hand was not necessarily what we wanted to do, but on the other hand is like big flagship customers you can plaster all over the place. It's bringing quite a lot of money as well, which is always useful. But we need to get out of this. So we have to build a plan on how do you go from public sector to a mass market where we sell apps in an app store. So who is the next people who are going to be interested by that? If the government like it, who will like it? Well, enterprises who have no choice but care about data sovereignty. People who cannot use Slack and Teams because it's unencrypted and stored in the cloud. People who have to protect their data, potentially on-prem or maybe in the cloud on our SaaS platform, but at least it's end-to-end encrypted. So we, we had to build it this way, looking at what would be the next audience who would be interested by it and um, how are we building and um, going out of it. Also, we've been always getting a lot of inbound because the Matrix Open Source project 
all the techies of the world have known about it and are interested by it. And then they take it and apply it to their own use cases. They bring it into their companies. So it's a very bottom-up approach where you have the champions wearing the metrics hoodies when you're pitching a customer in the background. And it's like, okay, this one is a win deal. And that's been a, a lot of our initial sales, where, including the French governments, etc. It's uh, always the technical team knowing about the project and bringing it inside. So once you have this, is okay, how can we amplify that? First, need to find a marketing person who is actually grasping the size of what we're doing and the long-term vision and understand the technical bits a bit because it's not so straightforward. Then how do you target the C-levels. We have the bottom-up. That's pretty clear. The open source project is helping. How do we get the C-level to do some top-down and advertise the work we've done with government, etc., to show what we can do? And then in terms of the sales strategy, finding the right sales team to target people who are able to deal with big deals and government, but also know about enterprise, because that's the next step. And then grow the sales team and adapt it as the audience changes. It's interesting because when I, when I think back to the Hadoop events we used to run, I remember the very first one that we ran, I looked out in the audience, it was all t-shirts. And I remember coming back the next year and the conference was like five times, maybe more as big, it had really grown. But it was like 50-50 between T-shirts and collared shirts. All of a sudden, there was like, you know, non-tech people are coming along that were getting super interested. And that kind of audience evolving and changing as the technology got adopted was really, really interesting. Do you think you're hiring people, you're bringing people on board? Do you think the sales skills for the people you hire are different for open source because of this kind of not split, but coexistence of matrix with element? Do you think... Salespeople need to have a different way of thinking about selling. They have to understand the vision. They have to understand that it's about the long term and not the two-year flip. We cannot optimize for the short term because in the end, Element exists to support Matrix and grow the ecosystem. So there are always debates, okay, this feature should be proprietary, should be open source, what is going to happen, in which case, in both cases, how do we do it? So people coming on board really need to understand open source and need to understand this idea of building an ecosystem rather than uh, and the vision. And it's hard. It's been very hard to find the right salespeople. It's taken so much time to find appropriate VP sales to, to actually join the team. But hopefully we're good now. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think we are. I think and um, the other thing we're asking our salespeople is to be very technical. And actually, a lot of them, they may not all have a technical background, but they're a geek at heart because they're selling to technical people and they really have to understand the, the difference of what it means to have the server deploy in on-premise or in the cloud and the decentralization, the end-to-end encryption, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's something which is not necessarily related to open source, but for us is very important. That word decentralized as well, I would almost say that Element is a decentralized company. I mean, you have people in their home offices all over the place pre-pandemic as well, Yeah, in terms of you build yeah. a company. Is that by design? Do you, do you think that model is powerful for your company or you know, does it help? Does it hinder, I suppose? So we have never done something like GitLab or Automatic saying, we are a remote company and we're going full in and we've designed lots of handbooks to do so. It just happened because we've been hiring people from the open source community. 
and we're developing remote collaboration tools. So it helps <laughs> to actually use day-to-day -day the stuff you're, you're building. We still had an office in London and one in Rennes in France where a lot of people were quite keen going. So we're, especially Matthew and I also in particular, really like going to the office and filling the team and be there with them. But yeah, it's been pretty natural, uh, aside from the fact that people may not find comfortable to be stuck at home and like the whole... If you used to go to the office, it may not be super easy to work at home all the time during pandemic, but in itself, it didn't disrupt the way we work too much because it was already the case. Yeah, I would agree. And looking at your background, we've just been through it. So technical, business, how have you evolved your management style with a commercial team? You know, because you've got these different personalities, different people coming into the business. Have you adapted? Have you changed? Or, you know, how have you kind of built your style with the team to manage that function? I'm not sure I found my style yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, management is definitely the hardest bit for me. Uh, crunching numbers, that's fine. Talking to people, that's another story. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm very used to be in a, in a technical world, talk to developers. Uh, I've always been part of the 10% <laughs> women as, uh, during all my studies, etc. So uh, that's definitely the more comfortable side of the world for me. Yeah, so there is a bit of adaptation for me, but uh, while well, you hire people, you get on well with, right? So it helps. People who understand tech and are a bit technical as well, so it helps. But I, I had to learn a lot in terms of how do you build your compensation plan for your team? Hello? Andy, <laughs> can you help? <laughs> yes, we had fun with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were a whole bunch of, of things I'd never dealt with and you don't learn in an MBA. So yeah, this year has been pretty, pretty interesting. I've got to ask the flip side, things that you've learned that you thought, uh oh, that didn't work. I wouldn't do that again. Is there any kind of gotcha moments in the last year, maybe? I think the latest light bulb moment we've had, and it's not just me, Matthew, as well, is when we got funding from Notion, we had Maddie come in at the time she was working with Notion saying, hey, you know, what was her role? What's the title? Talent Ops, is that right? Talent Ops. I yeah, I think so. Yeah. So she came in and she showed us a very impressive presentation saying, unicorns hire six VPs in the first three months of funding. Look at that and say, what? <laughs> You're crazy? We're not going to splurge in people who don't want to do anything and just want to hire big teams to do work for them. We want people to grow from the inside. And here we go one year later, sitting with the board on Wednesday saying, so we're going to hire a bunch of VPs <laughs> because we're on the critical path of everything <laughs> and we cannot go on holiday and this is not sustainable. <laughs> and they have the board applauding saying, good work, guys. <laughs> Took you one year to realize so I think that's the main gotcha moment, say, oh, okay, that was not a smart move. But uh, at least we've tried, well, the interesting thing of being involved in every bit is that now we understand every bit. Now you can hire the right people, you know precisely what you need. Yes, it's probably slowed us down having us in the critical path, but now we can fix it. I'm always interested as to who you see out there that you kind of admire or the companies you look at and you think I kind of like what they do or I kind of like this person and their style or are there people that you've kind of 
not necessarily you want to work for those companies or work for those people, but just things you, you admire that they've done. I think GitLab and Automatic are definitely companies we like because they've been very successful whilst building on open source in a very ethical way and still be very successful. Then there are one of our big things these days is market positioning. We want to build tools which are used by professionals but are usable by individuals. And that's when you start looking at, okay, how do Apple do it? How do you manage to get all these people who know nothing about tech by crazy computers, which are used by designers as well, or, or developers and people who need super big machines and very uh, flexible ones? It's not on business model or anything, but in terms of market positioning, it's always something I stare at. Say, God, how do we get there? How do we manage to do the same? So, yeah, that's another. <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, Matrix is about to go through a big milestone. Yeah. Did you think it would get this big or it would happen this fast? You know, have you been taken by surprise by any of this? So, yeah, it's getting to 30 million users, which is quite big. It's, uh, it's a bit weird because I think I'd I never thought about how will it feel like when we get to this many users. Now I'm starting to wonder, okay, when are we going to reach the billion? Is it like two years, five years, 10 years? Never. Uh, so now I'm starting to think of it, but I think you so much head down into trying to build the thing that you don't necessarily think about what it can feel like, but yeah. And, and just... As we said, the people listening to this will probably be maybe a couple of steps behind you in terms of building their businesses. Any advice, and I'm really thinking more as it pertains to open source, yeah? Any advice as to do that, don't do that, that kind of stick with you that you would pass on? For open source, do it honestly. If you're doing open source, do it really, truly, don't fake it. You're only going to build a successful open source business if you're doing it honestly, it's like you have to take care of your community. You have to give to your community. You have to make sure that you make the right choice so you're not trying to hinder the open source product, but make sure that it can grow and you put the power behind it in terms of evangelization and, uh, and community management and these sort of things. Because there are so many companies who just go open source. Like they had a proprietary product, turn it open source, leave it sitting here. And say, I've checked the open source box. Mm -hmm. Good for you. And what is it bringing? <laughs> Aside from a checkbox. Whereas here, once you have a rabid open source communities, it's going to bring you customers. It's going to bring you visibility. You have people like the chief digital officer of Germany standing in front of a crowd and saying, let's build a pan-European matrix network, starting with Germany and France communicating together without you never knowing he knew about you and these sort of things. So yeah, if you do open source, you have to do it properly. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Yeah, that's a great story, by the way. So I think with that, thank you so much. I think you've shared tons in there that people are going to find useful. So really appreciate it. I know you're super busy. So thank you for finding the time for this. Thank you for coming on. Any final thoughts or pearls of wisdom to share before we wrap up? Yeah, I think it's quite important to... Uh, make sure that every woman feel empowered to actually jump into this and do it themselves. As I was saying, I've always been part of the 10% and I find myself quite lucky to be here. But I think there is always opportunities for everyone. I feel we often as women don't celebrate enough compared to, to men. So let's make sure our successes are visible and let's make sure we celebrate women's successes, but not in a way where 
it appears like an exception. Because if you show to the rest of the world, like, look, this woman is exceptional because she did it. Say, how is it exceptional? Is it, it's not because she's a woman. It's exceptional. What she did was exceptional. Yeah. I think it's very important to promote that kind of things and yeah, make sure that the successes are celebrated properly. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Amandine, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great chatting. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Merci. <laughs>